0: Hey everyone. Welcome to this episode of the Best Boss Ever podcast series. I'm Carl Thomas, your host for the series, where every week we'll explore the best and the worst bosses, employees, relationships, leadership, management styles, what works, what doesn't, and why, and everything in between. So, Joy Howard, welcome back for part two, and just for our audience, they know I've never done this before, to have a part two, and I'm so thrilled to be able to have this conversation with you, because we didn't cover a number of things that I think are super important, Uh, and I want to, at first, out of the gate here, set the record straight, I had suggested in part one that you had been a CMO for the better part of 10 years, and that's not true, and you corrected me on that, So it's really only been about five years, but the brands that you have been responsible for are amazing. Uh, Lyft, Sonos, Patagonia, and now your role as the CMO of Dashlane, which everyone knows about. So I'm going to just going to turn this over to you because there are so many things that we have yet to cover. So Joy, thanks again uh, for being willing to do a part two and welcome to today's show.
1: Thank you. It's great to be here. I'm I'm really happy to be here. Thanks for setting the record straight also about my about my tenure. I think it's important for people to have not unrealistic expectations around how long it takes to get something done. And for sure, the role at Patagonia, even though it was the top marketing job, you know, it wasn't a CMO role proper. And that says a lot about what their expectations were of the job versus sonos where it really was a proper CMO role and they had much, much higher expectations. So been a, it's been quite the ride, and I'm happy to be here to talk to you
0: about it. Well, let's let's go back and cover a couple of elements from part one that I think we could both elaborate on and, and really sort of give some deeper insight, learnings, and takeaways here. And the in the first moment is you and I got to know each other via our, our mutual friendship with Jeff Cottrell, who was one of the best bosses you ever had, and he called out a moment. When you both were at Converse, where you walked into his office, and his quote was what you said to him, "Uh, Jeff: "All I really want is a chance to surprise you." So, can you elaborate on that a little bit? Well, well,
1: first of all, it was really incredible to hear him tell that story on your podcast because I remember that meeting so clearly, and I also remember how hard it was to have that conversation, and so to hear from him that it had a profound impact on his leadership was incredible, you know, because at the time I just wanted to create more space to have an impact within the team. And I had no idea that it would affect him so profoundly. So thank you for that gift, Carl, and for for allowing me to hear about that. You know, really Jeff is so good at what he did. And by the way, you know, what makes a great boss often is their ability to have like the fact that they have a great boss. So if I think about, you know, the great bosses I have so often, it's because they also had a great boss that created a great context for them. But suffice it to say that Jeff was, I mean, he just was a man, like at the at the top of the game, you know, and I was there learning from him and it was incredible. And so I think for the first, you know, year and a half, I was just learning so much and I didn't feel like, okay, you know, I really want to do more because every time, you know, everything that was happening, I was really learning a lot from but I kind of got to a point where I felt like, all right, you know, I want to show a little bit more about of what I can do here. And I just felt like I needed him to give me a little bit more space to do that. And so it was really hard to think about, you know, how to have the conversation. And I remember spending a lot of time, like I've always been a really avid journal keeper and I remember spending a lot of time kind of like, you know, getting, getting like, you know, what did I really want to get out of the conversation? You know, how best to approach it before I went in there. And so Sometimes, you know, having good relationships, you really have to put in the work to do it. You know, you have to work on yourself first and then you, you know, you have to enter into the conversation prepared. And I think it really paid off that I did that. So really, really great to hear how it turned out because then he did give me space and I was able to to learn more by doing. That's very much my learning style. And, you know, when I got ready to go and leave marketing at Patagonia, it was because, again, I felt like I was ready to do more. And he was in a position at that point to say, you're ready for this, you know, knock him dead and give me some great advice again on the way out the door. So yeah, that worked out pretty well.
0: Love to hear that story. So he actually not only encouraged you, but he gave you a little nudge to move on to, you know, a greater, more responsible role with a iconic global brand in in the fact of, of Patagonia. But you did mention one thing and I, I want to call it out because I 100% agree with you. And that's, if you will, sort of the chain of command, to use a military term, right? So you, you can't have a great boss or the likelihood of you having a great boss without him or her having a great boss to report to is diminished. So the the linkage and the succession chain of that, I think, is so critical. And to me, that really speaks of culture, right? That's the culture that leadership creates embraces, and then encourages based on who they hire and what levels of responsibility they give those folks that they brought in to actually do.
1: That's right. That's right.
0: So you, you moved on from Patagonia, and the other gentleman you called out in part one was was John McFarland, your direct report at, at Sonos. And I want to hear a little bit more about that because it's clearly, we just talked about that chain of command and, and the succession of who gets hired, why, how, when they get hired, and then the, what their role and responsibility is. But you spoke incredibly highly of, of John. And I want to hear a little bit more about that, sort of what breadth and depth did he give you, how many folks uh, were in your group, and and all of those sorts of things.
1: Well, you know, John was also able to be a great boss because he had a great board. So John had, and that was one of the most extraordinary aspects of getting to work for him was to have, you know, access to that board and the ability to learn from that board. So he made sure he had really good bosses for himself and, um, they, you know, they fully empowered him and also held him accountable and he led in that way too. So, you know, he just, he made it a regular habit of hiring people who were better at him in the things that he didn't do well or that he didn't know. And he just never had any illusions that he could do any aspect of, of my job better than I could. You know, he would be very firm with me about what the rest of the organization needed because that was my first time working in tech. And there are ways, you know, of leading within an engineering focused organization that are very different than working in a, um, you know, consumer products company or in a fashion company like that, like Converse. So, and, and he made sure that he got from me and from the marketing team what the rest of the organization needed, which again, you know, was new and different. But, you know, we had a really big global team and, um, you know, we had all the high expectations that come with, you know, being a venture-backed company and it was wild and wonderful and, and also at times hard, but certainly worth it.
0: A venture-backed company has its own idiosyncrasies without question. And the fact that John not only had a great relationship with the board, but they did their job, which was obviously governance, but also accountability at the CEO level, but they trusted him. And so this is a really interesting topic, I think, because in a venture-backed environment, as opposed to a publicly traded environment or, or a you know, smaller enterprise. What role, from your perspective, as one step removed from the board, does the board actually play? And how much access did you have to the board? And did you develop relationships on the board? Was John forthcoming and, and sort of, if you will, willing to allow that sort of thing to occur?
1: Yes. So before I answer that, one, one thing about the difference in a venture-backed company versus a more traditional company, it really largely has to do with pace. And, you know, I had never had any exposure to that. Ironically, my first exposure to it was when I went to Patagonia, where Rose Mercario, who is the CEO of Patagonia, had come up through tech. And a lot of times in these really big companies, people debate things a long time, there's a long time, you know, there's lots of presentations, many, many levels of hierarchy, you know, it's got to go all the way up to Beaverton and all the way back down to Boston. And, you know, working at Patagonia was exhilarating because of the pace that Rose set. So she was very, very fast. And I just, you know, you, you think of something, it's a good idea, you do it then just like that. So to me, that's the biggest difference about tech is that it's just much more fast paced. The board at Sonos, you know, they were there to help. And John was very clear that, you know, we ran the company, not them. They expected us to know way, way more than they did about what needed to happen. But they were there to help and we should ask for help. And to him, a sign of a great leader is they know when to ask for help. And so, you know, Mike Volte chaired the board. He is incredible from Index Ventures. John Maida, who is just an absolute legend, was on the board. And John became a mentor. He was really influential in recruiting me and then just became a mentor for me from that time on. uh Julius Janikowski, who ran the FCC during the Clinton administration. I mean, it's just a, you know, Robbie Bach from Microsoft. These guys are just, you know, just real legends. Um Karen Boone, who's on the board of Peloton and was the CFO of Restoration Hardware for a long time, was on the board. And just, you know, incredible leaders and, and there when you needed them. So, you know, you could just call them anytime. Usually if, if I was confused about something or really worried about something, I just found it, you know, great to pick up the phone and ask for a call. And they would always be there when I needed it with really great insight.
0: And when you made those calls, was it to a particular individual, or did you pick and choose, and did you have access to the entire board?
1: Yeah, we had access to the entire board, and I'll say John was very principled. There's much more transparency in tech organizations as well, and so he practiced transparency, nothing to hide, you know, everything was really open. I think it's really motivating for employees to understand as much about the financials as they can, because it helps them connect what they're doing to the impact that they're having. So he really wanted us to just reach out to them, you know, for whatever we needed, but usually it would be something, you know, like let's say I wanted to think about product lifecycle, you know, I would probably call Mike Volpe to talk about that or something, you know, that had to do with deal making. Like, you know, we were working on a big deal with Amazon and around Alexa and I wanted coaching on how to go in and negotiate that partnership. You know, I would call Robbie Bach about that because he worked at Xbox for so long and partnerships were such a big part of that business. And, um, licensing and such. So, you know, just kind of depended on the subject matter. And then you could just, you know, reach out and get the help you needed.
0: Well, that's, that's an, an awesome bit, because rarely, I'll say rarely, I mean, in the more traditional businesses, to your point, does a CMO have that sort of access and the willingness of both John, in his transparent management style, as well as the board to be there to help uh, it's not surprising that that Sonos has accomplished what they have, and it's not surprising to me that you are calling out John as one of the best bosses that you've ever had. And Hopefully, I'll get to talk to John one of these days, because he sounds like a super interesting guy. So let's move a little bit. Thank you for that, by the way. One of the things that we always try to cover, and we didn't really get much time to do it in part one... Was your not so great experiences and your not so great bosses. Oh, you know, I mean, if you say the best boss, then you also sort of, you know, the flip side of that coin is the worst boss. So, you know, with with that sort of lead in, can you talk about some of the things that, that you learned from, you know, the not so great experiences you've had?
1: Yes, because the worst boss is also the worst job, you know? And it's just amazing how how powerfully your boss can impact your whole life and, you know, how you feel every day. So, you know, I I I I had a boss and and it was really a super challenging business environment. It was in a joint venture that we had between Coke and Nestle. And this was a, a while ago. So I'm sure he's done a lot of work on himself since then. And I won't call him out by name, but I will just say that, you know, it was not a happy marriage, the joint venture. And so, you know, we were already in a very kind of dysfunctional situation. And you know, I took the job as an expat in Switzerland thinking that Europe would be a nice progressive place for me to be a working mother. And you know, once you're once you're an executive and you have a child, that's a really big part of the consideration, right? You want a place where you can have a good environment to be a successful executive and also be a mom. And I think I made a very terrible overgeneralization that probably only an American would, which is that Switzerland is not as progressive as other European countries, especially when it comes to women in the workplace. And I would say, you know, from that, really from that role onward, which is about 13 years ago, I haven't had a peer who has not had a stay-at-home spouse. And so I only tell you that because it's just a really different experience to try to balance work and life when you, you know, have a partner who's kind of picking up all the home front stuff versus when you don't, which is relevant because this particular boss pulled these insane work hours. And it was really unlike anything I'd ever seen because in the States, people at least expect you to go home for dinner. And so when I arrived, you know, granted, we were like in the thick of business planning, but I think my first week you know, we were in the office until 1030 or 11 every night doing these presentations. And, you know, that just didn't really seem super productive. And it was just such a shock and disappointment for me because I had this little two-year-old at home, you know, who I just couldn't wait to get home to see every night. So I think that, you know, the thing that I learned about that is, first of all, it's taken me a long time to kind of make sense of his behavior. There were two things. Like, he was very much someone who could see all the things that can go wrong, and so he sort of like obsessively wanted to, to play them all out and debate the pros and cons and it just very exhaustively kind of prepare down to the very last detail. So I guess sort of like classic micromanagement. But the second thing is, is that a lot of times, I think it's very, very common with male executives, work for them is their play. And so they can do it endlessly, you know, because it's like that is their that is their world in which they feel most vitalized and yes. most themselves. And I think this can also be true for women at times for sure, but it's not always the case for everybody who's in that office with you that that this is you know, the most fulfilling thing that they could be doing with their time. And so I just think having that sense of empathy, and restraint, if you do really even love what you're doing so much, and I've, I'm in that situation many times where I can barely put it down. or you know, Yvonne used to say, you know, I started Patagonia because I wanted a job where I could just run up the stairs two at a time every day to get to work. And that's my goal too, all the time at work. You have to have some self-restraint because you will burn the people out around you and you will just sap their lives of pleasure and joy if you approach working that way all the time. So that's really what I learned from them.
0: Not to mention potentially burning yourself out.
1: Well, you know, actually, one of the most memorable events is he gave me my performance review one night, probably like eight thirty at night, in his office. And while we were in there, he started to get a nosebleed. And normally, I mean, we, this is back when we, you know, we wore suits. I wore heels and hose and you know, it's a pretty formal environment. And you know, you would think you would just excuse yourself, right, if you're getting a nosebleed in the middle of a meeting. He did not even skip a beat, you know, he just like wadded the paper towel up his nose and just kept right on with the performance review. And I was like, wow. Yeah, he needs to chill. <laughs> uh,
0: well, well, I mean, are you like holding in, bursting out laughing in that moment? <laughs>
1: Well, I did. I did think about reaching into my purse to, to hand him a tampon, but then I just thought, you know, that like, <laughs> that might be too ridiculous to see him sit there giving giving me a non performance review with a tampon hanging. And I was like, so I didn't do that.
0: Well, that's a really <laughs> funny story. That's a really funny story, which brings me to the subject of humor in the workplace. I mean, I, I think I mentioned to you that in the brief time we've known each other, it's very clear to me that humor holds a very high place in in sort of who you are and how you approach life in particular, how you might approach work. So I really want to explore a little bit your experience with humor in the workplace, how important it is, what you bring to it. Is that something that's innate with you in your sort of DNA? Or did you learn that? Let's talk about you know, humor and, and having fun in the workplace as in my view a necessary component to success.
1: Well, I just I I think it is. And mostly because things can be things are so serious at work. You know, there's often like, I mean, depending on what field you're in, a lot at stake. And so sometimes just, you know, a little levity can can just re-energize everyone and also make harder things so much easier. So I, I also tend to think it's a sign of intelligence, people that have a great wit and a great sense of humor, which I don't really consider myself that witty. I, I'm married to the wittiest person in the world, so I have a very high bar. But I think, you know, it's usually a sign of intelligence and confidence, right? So if someone is in an interview, has the, you know, confidence to to be clever or witty, I definitely, I notice that and I think, hmm, that'd be a fun thing to be around, And yeah, so I just, I love it. You know, Jeff has a great sense of humor, obviously, and there were some really, really funny people that we worked with at Converse back in the day. So I've just always, you know, I've always enjoyed being around people like that. And it's sort of like, you know, a spoonful of sugar helps the medicine go down. If you can not take the things that you're learning always so seriously and uh, not take yourself too seriously, then, you know, people will enjoy, I think, being around you more and you'll have more fun too.
0: Well, certainly agree with that. Is it something you look for both in terms of perhaps the next role you take and or the folks that you hire or work with?
1: Not really. Like I'm so mission driven in my work and so focused on impact almost to a fault. So it's almost like, the you know, I find the humor as a way to sort of offset that drive and that intensity. You know, I just kind of embrace it and put some water and sunshine on it whenever I see it.
0: Got it. Perfect. The last topic I want to cover is actually the reason you and I are having part two. Uh, You had sent me a link to a YouTube clip by a young female artist named Maggie Rogers. And you actually made this quote, hey, Carl, check this link out. This is why I work. So given our penchant for female artists in the world of music We've already called out um, Carolyn Polachek for you, but elaborate on on Maggie Rogers, the, the track and and why uh, it resonated with you so intensively and, and why you actually suggested it was why you work.
1: Well, first of all, let me tell you why I even talk about why I work. And it's partly because I, you know, whenever you go into new work cultures, you'll always hear a phrase that is not something you've heard before in a work culture. And you'll realize like, hmm, that is a weird, you know, what does that phrase mean about this culture? And so one of the things that I heard only in Silicon Valley, but, and it's a very swaggy thing to say there. I'd never heard it anywhere else. And the first time I heard someone say it, I was all, and the person said, I don't work for money. You know, I, I don't work for money. And at first I thought it was this very arrogant, like, oh, I'm so loaded. But this guy was not. What he really meant was that he works for something more than money. He works for meaning. He didn't say, you know, what was the thing. And I was kind of so taken aback by his, you know, emphasis that I didn't really ask him. I just was kind of musing I'm like, wow, what a, what a thing to say, you know. And so ever since I started to hear that phrase, I've started thinking about, okay, what is it, you know, what is it that I actually work for? And when I saw this video of Maggie, basically, she's getting kind of like a design critique or whatever the, you know, sound engineering or mixing equivalent of that is by Pharrell or the production, you know, critique at school when she was a music student. And the song is Alaska. And it was really her big debut and it was a huge hit. But at the time when Pharrell came in to be the guest critic of the class, she was really unknown. And he had never met her before. And so I really encourage people to watch the video because she rolls, she she introduces herself, she rolls tape, and Pharrell listens to her. And as he listens to her, you can see that he is realizing how powerful her music is. You can see the way that he's moved by it. And that and and he acknowledges it and affirms her genius. And you can also see her so nervous. What is he thinking? And I think when I was younger in my career, I probably would have identified with her like, oh, I hope I get this approval. You know, I really want him to approve of my work. But the you know most incredible thing I'd say about the, you know, the part of my career that I'm in now is I get to be in the seat that Pharrell is in, listening to people's ideas, looking at their ideas, seeing their ideas, Everything's not great, but those moments when people bring you their genius and you see their genius and you can affirm it and and help them get it out into the world is the best, best feeling about work that I could imagine. And I can't imagine ever stopping wanting to have that feeling. And that's why I work.
0: That's so interesting because, you know, we'll do it again. A throwback to uh, the Cottrell moment where you bravely walked into his office and asked for a chance to surprise him. And I think you're now on the other side of that desk, and you relish those moments where surprises and great work and go so far as to say, man, that was a genius discovery, or whatever, gives you that sort of sense of wonder, that sense of amazement and boldness, which sort of is at the core of why you work. Did I paraphrase that right? A hundred percent you did. So
1: when I told him that I I will never forget also telling him that I was leaving for Patagonia, he gave me two pieces of advice. One, watch out for founders, which of course I did not listen to because I've worked for tons of founders since then. But the second thing is that the most important part of your job is saying yes to good ideas. And that has stuck with me. And the the incredible work that I've done has been that. It's been me saying, that is a great idea. How can I help you make it happen?
0: Well, I said yes to a great idea, which was you suggesting to me that we needed to do a part two. Joy, this was tremendous. I can't thank you enough for being willing to do it. I know great things are on your horizon and our audience is going to learn so much from this, from this part two interview. Thanks so much for being with us today.
1: Thank you for having me. It was great to talk to you again, Carl.
0: Thanks for listening, everybody. There's more to come every week. So please subscribe and rate us at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, Pandora, and many others. Also visit our website, at TheBestBossEver.com, where you can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, YouTube, and LinkedIn, as well as find more compelling content. Until next week, remember, words matter.